Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. Thanks, Rich. Today, we're thrilled to be talking about a new report that the Asia Group has just released called Asia Power Trends. The report highlights 10 trends that we believe are reshaping Asia. If you have not had a chance to read it yet, please check it out on our website at www.theasiagroup.com. We're excited to discuss some of the trends in the report, but before we get to that conversation, I want to welcome our firm's director of research, Dr. Siddharth Mohandas. Uh, to the podcast. Siddharth, great for you to be here. Thanks so much. Uh, Siddharth was the principal force behind the publication of Asia Power Trends. He joined the Asia Group after serving as one of Secretary of State John Kerry's foreign policy advisors and the principal deputy director of the policy planning staff at the State Department. Before that, he worked at the Pentagon and here at the Asia Group. He closely tracks the most pressing developments throughout Asia, and again, we're really excited you're here, Siddharth, and I've had the chance and Kurt has had the chance to work with you in, in government, and it's also great to work with you here at the Asia Group. Let me just start with the report, which I think is, is terrific, has gotten a lot of uh, great feedback and, and terrific reviews, but there's a lot of reports that go through the trends uh, around the world, but this one's really different. Tell us about why this report and why this focus. Thanks, Rich. Uh, thanks, Kurt. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, in terms of the report, as listeners of this podcast know, we at the Asia Group believe Asia is the most important region in the world today and will be for the rest of the 21st century. But for all the opportunity Asia represents and for all the potential it represents, the region is in flux right now. Uh, what we saw is that there are a series of overlapping geopolitical, economic, nationalist, and regulatory currents that are reshaping Asia today. And so what the report represents is our effort to catalog those trends, identify the 10 biggest among them, uh, put them in context, and talk a little bit about what they mean for the future. And I think our headline is that the biggest trend reshaping Asia today is not actually China or North Korea or any of the other headline items. It's really uncertainty about the role of the United States. Yeah, Siddharth, it, it has to be said that you know this uh, effort, Asia Power Trends, is the comprehensive uh, effort of the Asia Group, and it's based on you know decades of experience hundreds of conversations with key players in the room and probably thousands of trips over the course of our careers. And I think what struck all of us when we sat down to try to compose uh, an effort that takes a comprehensive look at Asia, it struck us that that what what really is emerging is an environment where for the last 70 years, the United States has been a reassuring constant in many respects in Asia, uh, providing uh, support for open trade, for uh, strong security commitments, for our partnership with allies, but increasingly that constant is shifting more to a variable. 
And we're finding that even among a number of trends in Asia, new routes of trade, uh, the rise of China, uh, the resurgence of, of, of countries like India, that among all those dynamic uh, dimensions, probably the most important defining feature of an Asia that has experienced tumult and change is the role of the United States. Is that related exclusively to Trump, or are there more systemic fundamental issues associated with this? I think there's a combination of factors. There's no doubt, I think, that the first uh, couple decades of the 21st century have raised questions about the direction of the United States. We had the jolt of 9-11, the difficulties associated with the war and terror, and the Iraq war. Uh, and then you have the global uh, financial crisis. And so I think there have been questions about you know, the direction of the United States. And, you know, concurrent with that, the rise of China in all of its uh, awe-inspiring aspects. Um, but then the kind of exclamation point on all of that was the election of Donald Trump, which I think was a great disruptor and has injected a lot of uncertainty. I'll just say that, you know, uncertainty today, uh, at least as far as Donald Trump is concerned, doesn't reflect lack of attention. Um, and to give you one relevant metric, you know, look at his Twitter feed. Uh, last year, he actually tweeted about China more than any other country in the world, mm. uh, except for Russia, but we'll put that to one side. Uh, and the country he tweeted about the third most was North Korea. So uncertainty is not, as I said, lack of attention, but it reflects an unorthodox approach uh, to foreign relations in Asia. And I think that's also what people are reacting to. Can you um, let me just press you on that a little bit, because if you talk to the military uh, folks, they will say, look, 60 percent of our Navy is still in the Pacific. Uh, we haven't changed our basic strategy when it comes to uh, free and open Indo-Pacific, which started under the you know, prior administrations, and we're continuing to work through that. So there is Trump, the personality. Mm -hmm. um, but there are some other things that have happened that have created this uncertainty on the trade front, on the alliance front. I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about that, um, that's given kind of fuel to that uncertainty. No, that's exactly right, Rich. It's not just a question of tweets, and it's not just a question of uh, loose rhetoric. You've actually seen, in some cases, a very concerted effort to actually change longstanding policy that had existed over decades. And so you mentioned trade. Um, the president's first act in office was pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, on alliances, he's questioned the utility of the, of the alliance between uh, the United States and the ROK, for example, not to mention uh, a variety of other alliances, and has basically made clear that he expects our allies in Asia and around the world to pay far more, uh, arguably more than their fair share. And then, you know, you have a situation where, you know, you, you see the president of the United States, and this is where I do think the rhetoric matters, praising dictators like Kim Jong-un and uh, Xi Jinping and disparaging some of our democratic allies. And so I think for Asia, for friends of America in Asia, there's been a bit of a question of what's going on here.
So besides the dynamics, Siddharth, associated with the changing role of the United States, arguably the most important uh, phenomena, really a phenomena, strategic uh, uh, realignment, is the rise of China in Asia. And, and many would say, still talk about a process that's underway, but in many respects, one of the points that the report makes is that across many manifestations, China has already risen and is already playing a dramatic role in trade, in politics, in uh, social policy, uh, in basically the factors that shape the global community. Um, tell us more about what the rise of China means within the context of Asia. And then perhaps we'll talk a little bit about what your expectations are for the future of U.S.-China relations. Sure. You know, we're arguably in a third era of modern Chinese history. There was the Mao Zedong era in which China was reborn as an independent nation, as a communist nation. Uh, and there was this period of nation building. Uh, there's the Deng Xiaoping era of reform and opening, which really inaugurated the uh, economic miracle that has uh, so amazed the world. And now we're in the Xi Jinping era. And um, again, you don't really have to take my word for it. This is actually the communist propaganda line that's come out. And I think a feature of the Xi Jinping era has been um, a willingness for China to be much more assertive in the world, in the region uh, and in the world. You know, when uh, Xi Jinping spoke at the 19th Party Congress um, now two years ago, he was, you know, unapologetic and said that China is ready to stand up in the world. And so, you know, connecting it back to what we were talking about earlier, I think what countries in the region have to contend with are these two major forces that are changing Asia today. On the one hand, a China that has risen, as you say, and on the other hand, a America that is uncertain. And what every country in the region, I think, is doing right now is trying to calculate their own interests between these two contending mm -hmm. forces. And that, I think, is the challenge of statecraft for most Asian leaders today. Sir, just uh, ironically, during this period, we are, in many respects, celebrating the 40th anniversary of the opening mm -hmm. of uh, China and the initial preliminary steps in the United States and China uh, together on the international stage. And we've seen 40 remarkable years not always easy years, uh, not always predictable years, but relative stability and a partnership that has essentially been the cornerstone of uh, the overall progress that we've seen in Asia to date. What's your expectation about what's next? I think we all acknowledge there is almost a bipartisan agreement in Washington that U.S.-China relations are in the midst of profound change. Where's that going? Uh, what does the report have to say about that? And what do you yourself believe is likely uh, in store for us in the future? I think we're facing a new normal in U.S.-China relations. What's, what does that new normal look like, though? 
I think it's going to be much more contentious, uh, competitive, and at times even confrontational. And I think that's going to be true across uh, the whole gamut of relations. So, so is that an in-state? Like, so some people will say competition for what? Or, or is, comp- is, is that all we can aspire to? Is that, is that where our two great civilizations and societies are going just – just, you know, competition as far as the eye can see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's a lot of debate and ferment in Washington right now about what this might all look like. Uh, And some people raise the analogy of the Cold War. Uh, And I think that's both overdone and just a highly misleading analogy. Uh, There's really no comparison in the relationship between the United States and China today and that between the Soviet Union and the United States. These were countries. What are the differences, though? Yeah, look, these were countries, the United States and Soviet Union, that did not trade each with each other, uh, were had totally separate spheres of influence, almost no people-to-people interactions, and were actually engaged in proxy wars around the globe. And so none of those conditions obtain in the U.S.-China relationship. So I think U.S.-China competition is going to look very different. It's going to be much more complex because these are uh, this is China's our number one trading partner. These uh, economies are irrevocably intertwined, and that's going to be a challenge uh, to be managed. Again, there's security competition, but we should be doing everything we can to avoid outright uh, hostilities. And I think most importantly, the countries in Asia that the United States calls its allies and partners, and that in many cases China sees as, as partners, don't want to choose between the two sides. And so I think those are the realities that China policy today has to contend with. It's also um, seems like for the president has made a calculation that this is good politics for him. And um, he can go around the country and, and tell people that he's doing something that no prior administration has ever done. On the other hand, it has created this incredible uncertainty uh, economically and for farmers and mm-hmm. for uh, manufacturers in the country. This leads me to the question about we're all focused on the trade deal. And I wonder if you have a sense of whether that, you know, if we get that, and most people think we will, it's just a matter of time. Does that reset things back in place between the United States and China? Or is that just one piece and the larger kind of new normal continues? No, that's right. I mean, um, I think there is an element of politics in sort of this tough uh, stance against China as far as the president's concerned. But in a sense, that's what's created a bit of a bind, I think, for him. On the one hand, um, I think he wants a deal because he's worried about the fallout for the economy and in particular the stock market. Uh, But on the other hand, he wants to come back and say that he's gotten substantial concessions precisely because that's what uh, he's promised politically and he will be criticized if he doesn't actually uh, meet that standard. But to your point, Rich, I think, you know, there I I think you're right. There probably will be some sort of deal. But regardless of the particulars of that deal, um, the relationship has changed and has changed in a bipartisan way. People on both sides of the aisle in Washington today want to be tougher with China, expect more reciprocity in the relationship. 
And there will, there will continue to be pressure on those points uh, regardless of the deal. And to give you two examples of that, you're going to definitely see it on as far as technology, trade, and investment goes. Mm-hmm. I think there will continue to be tremendous scrutiny of uh, technology investment in both directions and technology trade. Um, and you're going to still see pressure uh, related to other structural trade issues. I don't think anyone anticipates that the agreement, if there is one, will actually resolve some of the structural barriers that exist for American companies. That's really, really interesting. I, I want to shift away from the economics and, and to the broader uh, geopolitical risk, uh, strategic risk that you that you write about in the report. And you're talking about other Asian powers beyond China also flexing their muscles. You talk about Japan and South Korea and India and these massive defense expenditures um, coupled with these flashpoints in in Asia that are are really um, are really in a tense uh, place. Give us a sense of, of why you flag this and why this is so important. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big uh, points that we really wanted to emphasize in the report is that what's happening in Asia is much, much bigger than just U.S.-China, and that there really are these um, enormously important other players that need a lot of focus and attention, Uh, notably uh, India, as you well know, Rich, Japan, Australia, the countries in ASEAN. Um, And one thing, you know, as I said, as they look around at how politics is changing in uh, in the region, um, they're trying to make their own way. And they're doing it on the defense side. Asia is projected to be the largest defense market in the world mm-hmm. by 2030. Uh, and there's going to be a, a degree of tension and a degree of danger associated with that as these major powers uh, rub up against each other. They're also, frankly, trying to make their way on the trade side as well. Um, Part of what you're seeing is an effort by like-minded countries to band together and uh, defend a free trading order, which in their own ways, they see the United States and China as not fully buying into. And so even though the president pulled out of TPP, the United States pulled out of TPP, you actually did see TPP 11, the other 11 countries, Mm -hmm. forging ahead. So Siddharth, we've had a little while to reflect on what happened in uh, Hanoi. Uh, what happened? Help us understand uh, what went down between President Trump and the North Korean leader. Look, I think the president fundamentally in Hanoi faced a choice between, and he was pretty clear about it himself, uh, taking a small deal or going big, as he said, and going big or going home, and he chose to go home. And uh, I think that reflected a couple of things. I think um, to a certain extent, the North Koreans overplayed their hands. The accounts that have emerged publicly, including from the North Korean side, is that they had basically asked for a total lifting of sanctions of at least the most significant sanctions, those imposed since 2015, 2016. Uh, in return for access just to Yongbyon. And I think the president felt that that wasn't a deal that he could take home to Washington when he's under enormous uh, bipartisan pressure. And again, I think it's important to emphasize it's Republicans and Democrats alike who are saying that, you know, we need to hold North Korea's feet to the fire. So I think the most significant development uh, that actually came out of Hanoi 
is that for the first time, the president and the administration acknowledged that denuclearization was not happening. And that's really a shift from where the administration had been for the last year. They they said that effectively Kim Jong-un had agreed to that and they were sort of making progress. But then I think the other lesson of Hanoi is is a basic one, and it's one that's familiar to all of us who have toiled at the State Department, which is preparation and the spade work of diplomacy matters. And I just don't think that there was enough time uh, put into that before meeting at the summit level. Um, but, you know, Kurt, I know you have negotiated with the North Koreans for a long time. I'd be interested in your read on where we are as well. Yeah, thanks, Siddharth. I've worked on North Korea for about uh, almost 30 years now uh, through a range of interactions and uh, deep discussions with allies and friends. And I I must say that I have a complete unblemished record of failure (laughs) with (laughs) with respect to engagement there. So I've got it wrong at every, every turn. So I'm not sure there's much more I could add, Siddharth. So we've got a little bit more time. I do want to ask you about some other um, uh, trends that the report highlights. You talked a little bit about uh, the changing nature of the sort of the circuits of Asia, how uh, supply lines and trends in terms of um, uh, uh, you know how products are uh, built and sustained. Tell us a little bit about how you think those dynamics are shaping the modern Asia. Mm-hmm. One immediate fallout of the trade war is that every company in the world that has multinational operations has really scrubbed their supply chains, looked at them hard for weaknesses, for vulnerabilities. Um, So what what would those look like, though? What does that mean? Well, certainly the tariffs have been a big part of it. Um, There's no question that you know, simply the increase in the price of steel for U.S. companies has actually driven up prices in the United States. Mm-hmm. And a number of uh, major industries, including, you know, automakers have have identified that. But the point that I'd make is that while the trade war may have accelerated some of the pressures on supply chains in Asia, it did not create them. Uh, and those pressures are in many cases structural. On the one hand, you just see wage growth in China. Wages for the average manufacturing worker in China are now five times that of uh, a worker in India. And that is just putting pressure on companies who, who produce in China. I was uh, you know, very surprised to see a statistic where 30% of the members of the American Chamber of Commerce of South China, the manufacturing heart of China, uh, said that they were looking at moving operations to Vietnam. And, you wow, know, that's con- incredible. No, it was, it was shocking to me. And countries uh, are paying attention to that. So Vietnam wants a piece of that pot. Yeah, so we all uh, have heard about sort of Vietnam being the pot at the end of the rainbow that all countries are look- or all manufacturing and other uh, you know, folks are looking at in terms of the supply chain. Are there other countries that that are also registering accordingly in Asia, Siddharth? I think so. I mean, I think the Malaysians have made a big play, particularly to focus on more kind of value-added electronic manufacturing. Um, but I think the the big story and potentially the game-changing story could actually be India. And, you know, I don't know what your view of that, Rich, is. But uh, Bangladesh has already established itself as a leader in textiles. 
Um, you know, Sri Lanka is a possibility, Myanmar even. Um, so I think, you know, there's this sense that this is the time for countries in South and Southeast Asia in particular. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with that assessment. I think uh, India in particular is, is really looking to seize on the trade war and yeah. the doubts about the sourcing stability and, and to try to capture some of that business. So it'll be interesting to watch. Uh, I want to talk uh, about another subject in the report, which is technology. And, you know, we think we've had our fights here in the United States over trying to wrestle that line between uh, privacy and security. Um, and, and all societies are really uh, fighting about this. And in India, we've watched fights in the digital payment space. We've seen it on e-commerce. We've seen it with social media platforms. And you refer to this uh, kind of backlash as a tech lash. But what, what I realized when I'm reading the report is that this is happening uh, across the region. This is not an India-specific problem or a UK problem or an India problem. Uh, give us a sense as to what, what's going on. I think there's just a fundamental debate that every country really in the world um, is is grappling with, which is um, the the balance between kind of the convenience and and attractiveness and opportunity of technolo- technology and technological change, and privacy on the other hand. And um, you know, in India. There's been concern about sort of incitement through technology uh, platforms. In the uh, aftermath of this terrible attack in New Zealand, again, there's been a renewed debate about whether companies are doing enough to police their platforms. Um, and so, you know, there's a there's a there's a particular flavor to that debate in every country, uh, and it takes a different flavor. But I think there is this common ingredient, which is what is the actual balance? How do you hold these companies accountable? And uh, what more could they be doing? Sarah, great, great answer. Before we have to go, I do want to emphasize one additional trend and ask you to think a little bit about it uh, for us. Our final uh, uh, piece of the puzzle is one that doesn't get a lot of coverage in the media on a day-to-day basis, and that's climate change. Um, But we argue in the report that uh, Asia is perhaps most susceptible uh, to some of the issues associated with climate change in terms of migration patterns, change in, uh, uh, you know, uh, glaciers, uh, issues associated with, you know, disappearing estuaries, you name it. Um, what What's your view about climate change and Asia? Does it have the potential to impact the politics uh, of the region as we know it? There are three things that are true uh, about the climate and climate change uh, in Asia today. First thing is Asia is the part of the world that is going to be most affected by climate change, as you point out, Kurt. Um, you know, as much as fifty percent of of the land in, in in Asia and certainly coastal land can be will be affected by rising sea levels. Uh, Asia is the number one consumer of fossil fuels in the world today. Uh, and that's what is actually powering the Asian economic miracle as we speak. Asia is also the number one investor in renewables. Um, and that's because I think governments in the region get it. They recognize that the current path is not sustainable. 
But I think the challenge for every government is this almost race between the present and the future. Um, countries uh, need access to um, cheap fossil fuels because that is actually what is powering their economies in real time. It's what's creating opportunities for their people. All of these countries have large groups of young people who want jobs, and they can't. They feel that they can't sacrifice economic growth. They're looking at the horizon, and they do see that renewables are the future, and so they're putting money into that. But I think, you know, in many ways, the the fate of the planet hangs in the balance of whether uh, Asia is able to prioritize the future over the present. And it, I think it remains an open question, frankly. But what is interesting, I think, is um, following the withdrawal of, from, of the United States from the Paris Agreement, we were worried about the crumbling of that agreement and that con exactly countries right. would not live up to their commitments when, in fact, we've seen just the opposite. We've seen countries in Asia actually uh, keep to those commitments, uh, maintain their commitment to, to Paris. And that's been uh, heartening to see even in this kind of difficult uh, environment. I totally agree. And I think that is um, one of the most hopeful developments that we've seen. Um, you know, I think last year, Asia was responsible for two thirds of the new renewable energy capacity that came online. And that's the trend that we should all be working to support and that we should all be uh, hoping succeeds. And uh, again, I think that reflects uh, the leadership of individual Asian leaders who have prioritized uh, climate change in that respect. Siddhar, thanks so much for joining us uh, for the discussion today. I want to, again, encourage our listeners to check out Asia Power Trends if they haven't already. The report is available for free on our website. If you've enjoyed this episode today, you'll certainly want to read the report. And Siddhar, thanks again. An amazing Thank contribution to the discussion on Asia. And I hope people go to the website and, and download the report. And of course, we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.